Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Welcome to another episode of the Living Church Podcast. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and today we're presenting part two of our two-part interview between Pulitzer Prize-winning author Marilyn Robinson and former Archbishop of Canterbury Rowan Williams about Robinson's new novel, Jack. But first, a little note of housekeeping. We have now aired 37 episodes of the Living Church Podcast. We started off with a bang. We were rolling out two episodes a week when we first started out. Whew. And then we slowed down to one episode a week. And finally, we are coming to our regular cadence of one episode every two weeks. So that will begin in two weeks. We will have one episode every two weeks instead of one a week. So if you tune in next week and you don't hear a thing from us, don't worry. You will have another episode ready on October 22nd. And if you don't want to keep track of all this math, I don't blame you. You can just subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere you get a podcast, and you'll automatically receive your newest episode when it goes live. I hope that between last week and this week, you have had a chance, if you haven't yet, to order a copy of Jack and read it for yourself. Marilyn Robinson is the author of many works of nonfiction and fiction, including the 2004 novel Gilead and the other novels in the Gilead series, of which Jack is the fourth. And Jack, of course, focuses on the character of Jack Boughton. It also focuses on his wife, Della, in their relationship. In part one, Bishop Rowan and Marilyn talked about Jack and Della's relationship, about race in American history, the language of the soul, and the problem of good. You can go back and listen if you haven't already. Today, they spend some time with Jack himself, time well spent, and they talk about what his eponymous book reveals about his complex and difficult character and what it illuminates about the other books in the Gilead series. We hope you enjoy the conversation.
I was thinking of um, a couple of things from a rather different context, which, to my mind, illustrate the notion of respect. The late Dowie Phillips, the philosopher, who was a fellow townsman of mine from Swansea in South Wales, used to say that something very, very significant had happened in Welsh village life when people stopped coming out onto the streets to watch a funeral procession going past. As he said, there had been, when he grew up, which would be 30 odd years before I was growing up, there would still be the sense that you, you would come out on the streets, you would walk a certain amount of the way with the funeral procession. And that was a mark of respect, not simply a mechanical taking a hat off, but a way of acknowledging that there was something which you could only cope with through a slightly ritualized kind of behavior, which didn't make a great deal of sense. I mean, what difference does it make to walk alongside a hearse? But was an acknowledgement of um, a loss that you couldn't find words for, a dignity you couldn't find words for. And that was that was respect. And the other thing that came to my mind is very different, again, but also from um, Swansea in South Wales, and that's Dylan Thomas's wonderful preface to his collected poems, where he tells the story of a, a West Wales farmer who still put out offerings for the fairies. And somebody said, do you seriously think that you're, you know, you're making any difference by putting out these little sources of milk for the fairies? And the farmer simply said, I'd be a dumb fool if I didn't. And um, Dylan Thomas says, these poems are written for the love of man and in praise of God, and I'd be a damn fool if they weren't. <laughs> and respect with that element of sort of almost an undercurrent of exuberance in it. <laughs> I rather warm to that. Yes, yes. People seem to be very interested at the moment in the concept of the soul. I've noticed this. And, you know, I think that that's just a, such an excellent thing because if people had more love for the soul experientially and as you know the the sort of uh, secret of all beautiful originality they would have a much kinder view of god which i think is extremely necessary um because the how we are to understand the nature of god has everything to do with how we understand the nature of everything else yes and I think it, it has to do also with, with the notion that when we talk about the image of God in human beings, we're, we're really not talking about there being some bit of us that's a bit like God, but that our, our sense of awe and hesitation and joy on the threshold of the mystery of another person is like that we feel in the presence of God or should be, and vice versa. So we, we each learns from the other the uh, the deep awe and reverence and joy on the threshold of God tells us something about how, how we're to turn to the rest of, of creation and how we're to react. I agree utterly. And um, coming back to that theologian we both rather treasure, John Calvin, um, I think people who looked hard at what he says about the image and what he says about the love that's required of us. I think there's a lot there, isn't there, in, in Calvin about just that. It's not It's not all about depravity. It's not all about the obliteration of the image. It's, it's about something 
you know, what, what he writes about our depravity is, in a sense, much more to do with the fact that if this is what we really are, if this is how God is and we are, what a loss there is in our lostness because there is such joy on the other side of it. Yes, and he has also that sort of renaissance uh, assumption of human magnificence. Yes. I mean, look how spectacular we are, you know, while solving problems in our sleep and all the rest. And then he says, basically, this is dust and ashes compared to what we would be, you know. So it's a sort of a, a fortiori comparison, you know, with the, it, catapulting the human image beyond human experience, you know. Uh, which I think is is very beautiful, you know. When when Calvin wrote the word depravity, I mean, when he used, um, you know, uh, the it, I mean, it comes from Latin and it comes from French, and it meant something being warped, or or uh, the same with corruption. He uses it to describe a flawed text. He, and he also uses depravity to describe a flawed text, you know. Um, and when you think of the importance of like mirrors for him and the fact that at that period it would have been very difficult to make a truly accurate mirror or lens. I mean, it seems to me as if the idea of depravity, of warpedness, has everything to do with that um, very modern conception that he has that yes, indeed, we perceive brilliantly, and yes, indeed, there's always a major flaw in what we perceive, you know, that we have not the means to to correct for. So I, I'm campaigning quietly uh, against the negative connotations of the word depravity. Very hard work. <laughs> yeah. As you indicate, it's the same with the word corruption. Yes. Um, in, in the way it's used, especially in the Greek Christian tradition, it's much more to do with fracturedness, fragmentation. Right. Um, that when when we say we are corrupt, what we're saying is that we we are we're in bits. We don't know how to pull ourselves together. Quite literally, the incorruption or incorruptibility that that we're promised is not some kind of um, static welding together. It's much more. The idea that all the diverse elements that make us who we are are given an integrity, a, a wholeness, a capacity to respond in their wholeness. And that's a very different take, isn't it, on corruption and corruption? Yes, yes. And, you know, when you think of Calvin, basically, you know, I mean, he he translated from Jerome's Latin or what, you know, as it had been received at that time into his own Latin, all the the uh, passages that he wrote commentaries on, and you know when you think of he was doing classic scholarly work of you know disputing the interpretation of the Hebrew or something like that you know and uh so when he you know if he's using the metaphor of corruption for a human being in the same way that he would use it for a text, I think that has to be sort of borne in mind you know that's right we we can't read. Read accurately. We can't read adequately with the eyes we have. Right. Hmm. What if I could just go back for a moment to um, angels and death and <laughs> those other themes? Um, that, that that very wonderful phrase about angels not knowing death. Clearly, since one of the most significant scenes or episodes in this novel is set in a cemetery, that 
that can't be an accident in the light of what you have to say about death, Sarah. There must have been some conscious choice about giving the night in the cemetery such a, a very strong and um, resourceful presence in the book. Yes, well, you know, these these things are always a little bit mysterious to me. I knew that uh, Jack was set in St. Louis, you know, um, and I went with a friend of mine to St. Louis, a city I, about which I knew nothing at the time. And um, it, it turns out that it has a, a famously vast and beautiful cemetery where, you know, Clark of Lewis and Clark is buried and so on. Um, and we walked around and looked at all this. There are very communicative cemeteries. And uh, I thought of it as a, a place that would be, you know, racially identified. You know, I mean, they did tend to separate people in, you know, those circumstances. And something that would attract Della, something that she would want to see, just overstepping, of, you know, rules and anxieties and all the rest of it. Um, and so I sort of put them there and then they began talking. <laughs> I was pleased that they did. Mm. And the rest is history. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we're not in the land of the living. We're ghosts among the ghosts. Two spirits, invisible. Nothing else to say about us. That's, uh, that's again, part of what I, what I took from the, the cemetery episode. In a way, it's, it's a, a focusing on, well, on the eternal, on, on the soul, because that's what you, in a sense, you have to focus on in that context. I mean, the whole thing about immortality is that it certainly uh, creates the sense of an essential self like nothing else would. The return of someone would be a highly, highly particular consequence of life and restoration and all that sort of thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. There's, there's another theme which uh, obviously relates to the rest of the sequence in a, in a big way, because as various people, including myself, have, have argued in different places, a lot of this sequence of novels is about goodness, the, um, the strength the flawed character of goodness, the ambiguity of goodness, goodness and holiness and all the rest of it. And um, you've got some comments about goodness here put in, in the mouth of Jack's father. You are not good for your own sake. That probably isn't even possible. You are good as a courtesy to everyone around you. Keeping a promise or breaking it, telling the truth or lying matters to those around you so there is good you can do and can always do again. You do not have to believe you are good in order to act well in any specific case. You never lose that option. Um, that, that phrasing, you do not have to believe you are good in order to act well. And that's, obviously, that's hard hearing for Jack, who certainly in, in the other novels toys with the idea or the the fantasy almost that he's he's predestined to reprobation in some sense. And when when that comes to his mind, does that connect at all with the way in which you more than once see him as striving to be harmless? Um as if although he can't he can't believe he's good, he can at least have the choice of refraining from harm. 
Yes, I, I, I do see it that way. I, um, he has, I mean, he, he has a, um, an impulse that he describes or that his father has described for him to s- interact with the world of other people uh, in a way that kind of tests reality by, by marring it or, you know. And uh, this is, you know, I mean, his, there's nothing selfish about any crime that he does. He's never better off. He he steals things that are worthless. He breaks things that are simply vulnerable and meaningless. I, I don't know what it. You know, I I'm interested in goodness partly because I don't really understand the, <laughs> the alternative. But um, don't tell people I said that. You know, but uh, in the case of Jack, in the case of Jack, I want it to be. Uh, sort of a way that he reaches out from a, a very intense isolation that he feels. Um, and f- because he has those impulses, he has no confidence that he can, he can't accept an ordinary place in the ordinary world. He feels somehow disqualified from that or f- disqualified by a failure of aspiration or something like that, you know, um, he likes himself. That's one of the things that I, I want to sort of get across. He, there is a way in which, with all its difficulties, there are real pleasures for him in, in being who he is, being what he is. But that that also is where some of the, the kind of moral and emotional pinch points come in the novel, isn't it? Because here he is, in love with Della, and it's more and more borne in on him that there's no way he can be harmless to her in in the particular society he's in and yet what he's being asked to do in a way is to respond as as if he were a good person to a good person's love and and he has to weigh that almost against the harm that's that's why i think the, the final passage about being a thief of the good is is so powerful it's 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 a, a kind of desperate way through this almost catch twenty two situation. He can, he's invited to or summoned to something which is manifestly good, which is unaccustomedly good, and yet he weighs again and again. He's made to weigh by other people the, the harm he might be doing to this person who loves him. And that uh, that's that's part of the the edge of the narrative for me. Yes, for me also. I mean, I I. Uh... The best thing that he will do in his life, the best thing that, in terms of how he describes it to himself, is to be loyal to someone that loves him, to be loving to someone who loves him, and and uh, you know, I mean, he's used to have being looked at askance by society at large, but in the in the course of doing the most honorable thing, he is putting himself at the greatest distance from social approbation. You know, um, I'm. I'm very aware of that. I'm so hard on my characters sometimes. But, you know, he's being invited to be a good man, in a sense, in a way that would be a bad thing. You know, I mean, he there's only one way that Della could understand it if he, if he left her, a very injurious thing, a very a, a betrayal. And staying with her, of course, is, is in every way dangerous to her. And that's something which which her father 
certainly lays out in utterly uncompromising terms. As always, this podcast is a ministry of the Living Church Institute, which encourages you to subscribe to the Living Church magazine, the publication that brings you the latest news from the Episcopal Church, the Global Anglican Communion, and beyond, along with thoughtful analysis, rich reflections on theology and parish life, and recommendations in literature and the arts. Annual subscriptions start at just $9.95 for digital. To subscribe, go to livingchurch.org and click Products. That also makes me think a bit about the the whole chronology of the sequence. This is Jack some years before we first meet him earlier in, in the sequence. And he has, as we read this novel, those of us who have read the, the whole sequence will know that Jack has, in the important sense, been faithful. And yet that faithfulness is still being tested to destruction on both sides, if um, if we think back to Gilead and home. So presumably, as, as with um, the third novel of the sequence, we're, we're being invited to see how people have learned to be where they are, and how, how and what Jack has learned is, I think, one of the, the unanswered but powerful and consistent questions coming from those sequence. Yes, well, uh, it's interesting. I, I'm trying to write something about my mind changing, you know, just a, an essay. And, you know, there's a, such an important way in which you never feel as though that's really true. I mean, I, re- reaching back as far as I can in my memory, it seems as if I always was sort of about, you know, the same project. I mean, Jack... He presents himself, as he says, being more worldly than he is, and so on, as a defense for, you know, what he would feel as a sort of uh, defenselessness, really, an, an inability to muster a, you know, I mean, an inoffensive good man presence, you know. I mean, whatever he pretends, he's he does not deviate from being who he is, which is that soul that soul that Della sees in him. God loves his problem. Children, I think we find that in the texts. <laughs> yes. And and I think just you know, turning back to to home in particular, one of the things that I think every reader will carry away from that is the awareness of Jack's immense integrity, not not in what you might call a conventional heroic sense, but in a very quiet, a very restrained way, he he is who he is. He thinking of Jeffrey Hill's line, you know, I cannot turn away from what I am. Um and he's he's not he's not saying that or expressing it in a in a defiant, aggressive way. And the poignancy of home is watching Jack's integrity at work in an environment where Initially, at least, nobody sees that that's what it is. Yes, yes. I think that what I'm exploring there is the fact that that we are basically inattentive, even to people that we 
feel that we deeply love, and that that inattentiveness is um, is the great test that they bear. You know, I mean, to maintain integrity in the face of it, and so on. But certainly, reading reading Jack is is immensely illuminating as you then turn back to the earlier novels to see how that integrity takes shape. Because being able to follow this painful, constant self-questioning that's going on in Jack in this novel, the sort of finely poised awareness of how each gesture or each action can be mis- misheard or misreceived, misapprehended. I, I found it deeply illuminating as, as a way of filling out the character we've already met. You see that um, almost hypersensitivity about how he's being heard and received, how that's shaped and how it, how it works and how it is, to some extent, not overcome by, but at least embraced by the love that he receives and the difference that makes, but without that being a sort of cheap resolution at all. So I think he ends up as an extraordinarily many-layered and compelling figure. Good. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, I think the book works, basically. <laughs> That's what every writer is waiting to hear. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.